The Thing, and The Thing. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Siskoid from four years ago. Taking you through a classic superhero team up, The Thing and The Thing. Now you see what's happening. From Marvel 2 in 1, number 50, cover dated April 1979. And, and Siskoid, I've sort of called you up from the very start of the Fire and Water Podcast Network because we have two versions of The Thing here the contemporary 1979 one and the early career 1961 Mud Monster version. Okay, so the network is still going strong. That's, I guess that's good to know. Uh, obviously, I started a team-up show in addition to everything else. You did, uh, but uh, I don't want to pollute the timeline too much by saying more, uh, though, as we'll see, maybe the temporal prime directive doesn't apply. Uh, anyway, The Thing battles The Thing. I don't know what, what it is about issue 50 of a team-up title, but DC Comics Presents... Uh, did a Superman and Clark Kent team up for its 50th. I hadn't realized. Did that happen on other titles? Nah, uh, Brave and the Bold wasn't a Batman book at number 50 yet, but I guess if you count multiples of 50, issue 200 has the Earth 1 and Earth 2 Batmans teaming up. Uh, Marvel team up never did anything equivalent. Okay, well, uh, in each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick one character to defend. So in this case, Siskoid, who's your guy? Well, I think it's only natural that I would take the past thing. I agree, and so I will take the contemporary thing. As is customary, we'll preface with a reason or reasons why we like the character we've chosen. Uh, Siskoid, what's so great about the thing? In the past like that, uh, I actually like that they didn't, they, you know, they hadn't nailed down his look. Uh, it's not just the, the muddy monster look. I know that what the story says it's dinosaur skin, but it was always mud that then cracked into stone to me. That's that's what it looked like. So that old look, m maybe he felt he was more ugly that way, less defined. Uh, and he also briefly had that blue, like a full blue costume like the others, but with a helmet in this era. So I guess what I'm saying is I like, I like that the look has its own arc, uh, which is what this issue also explores. You know, I don't, don't think Stan and Jack could have planned it any better if they'd actually tried. Uh, what about you, Siskoid? What's one thing you like about the thing? Well, the same, right? Uh, we're the same person. Uh, but yeah, the Rocky look is, is so much cooler and a great evolution of a character who, who wasn't very detailed at first. So, so Ben Grimm, it's interesting, Ben Grimm grew to be iconic, whereas maybe the team itself was iconic from the get-go. So while the thing normally needs no introduction, maybe you'd like to talk about his publication history up to the point where we catch up to him in the past. Sure. Uh, well, from clues in this issue, the story has to take place between issue two and three of the original Fantastic Four comic, which means Ben has only had time to get turned into the thing and fight Mole Man and the Skrulls, and that's it. Uh, obviously, he was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Uh, he's really part of that DNA strand of early Marvel that, that came from the monster comics that they were publishing before they started doing superheroes. So apparently his speech patterns were, were based on those of Jimmy Durante, but uh, Jack Kirby is said to have modeled the character on himself. That's it. Yeah, there's little to say at this point. It's true. Uh, so let's just get into the story. Here it is. Remembrance of Things Past by John Byrne and Joe Sinnott. Reed Richards is conducting tests on Ben Grimm. The Thing. 
with the ultimate goal of restoring him to human form. Reed recently lost his powers for a time, his body having rejected the cosmic rays that turned him into Mr. Fantastic, and maybe there lies a cure. Unfortunately, Ben's body has grown more and more accustomed to being the thing, explaining his change in appearance over the years. So Reed's formula, which might have worked on Ben in the early days, wouldn't work today. Disappointed, he will have to start from scratch with a new approach. He leaves. But Ben gets an idea. He grabs the formula and uses Dr. Doom's repossessed time machine to send himself back to those early days where it might actually work. Not having set the space displacer, he appears in the Baxter building before the FF moved in, and in fact, has to dodge Reed and the realtor visiting the place. Ben heads to his old apartment block, where he makes a neighbor faint. Unfortunately for him, that draws the ire of his younger, uglier, more bitter self, who knocks him into a car before he can initiate parlay. Ben rolls the rocky monster up in asphalt and plans to bring him to Reed. But, but, no buts. I don't know what you're talking about and stop saying you're me, you mocking handsome devil. The thing shatters his asphalt roll up and tries to overcome his younger self, but... The true thing throws him into a building set for destruction, then goes rummaging in the rubble for his corpse. Ben's fist comes out of the pile of debris and knocks the other thing down. Near a fire hydrant which original flavor Ben rips out of the ground and uses the water pipe to almost drown his opponent. But Ben reaches into the ground and snatches the pipe from an earlier point and whip-snaps it, so 1961's thing is sent flying. Then he grabs a sanitation department street sweeper and goes to smash it on the prone thing. And then he realizes he might kill himself, calms down, and goes in close to more sweetly clobber young Ben into unconsciousness. Having done so, he pours the formula down his throat and watches as the muddy thing changes back into a very human Ben Grimm. The time machine portal appears. Ben, who is still a thing, but surely he'll revert to human when he gets home, gets under the portal and vanishes. Not a dream, not a hoax, not an imaginary story. Ben Grimm wakes up human. He looks around for his future self and doesn't see him, so he thanks the sky. Forward to 1979, and Reed has snatched Ben from the time stream, but he's still the thing. What happened? Reed reminds him that you can't change history when you time travel. You can only create another timeline. Sorry. Well, the trip wasn't a total waste. After seeing his old self face-to-face, he doesn't feel bad about the kisser he's got now. So that was the story, and as you said, it takes place just before they got the Baxter building in FF number three, so between two and three somewhere. Uh, Let's talk about that cover. What do you think of this George Perez, Joe Sinnott original? Oh, wow, George Perez, you're right. I I hadn't spotted that signature there. Well, uh, like the interior art, it's more Sinnott than it is whatever the penciler, but I think you can tell it's him just like in the detailed buildings. In the back? Yeah, it's got, sort of got that mascara quality to them, you're right. Uh, I don't know why John Byrne couldn't have done the cover, actually. Maybe he wasn't as fast as an artist uh, then, uh, but I'm sure it would have removed the inconsistencies, like uh, it it's the wrong thing holding up the street sweeper, and uh, I don't know what that riot in the back is all about. Well, no matter what, it's a nice superhero fight composition. Agreed, and I mentioned John Byrne there, uh, but it's... Pretty early work for him, like, except in a few instances. But this is pretty early work for him. Like, I couldn't have recognized it as John Byrne, especially not John Byrne doing the FF. 
not to say the art isn't strong. I, I think the superhero action is extremely well done, but there's something not quite burned about the faces. Yeah, that action man, there's a, a lot of cool stuff in there, uh, including a splash page where the young thing gets flipped by a punch, like Gil Kane style. And I like the whole bit where Ben is rolled up uh, in part of the street. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my favorite part of the fight is probably the whole fire hydrant thing. They're using their environment and improvising and all that, but it's also very clever uh, as a use of the city's plumbing. You wouldn't know this, but uh, in the previous episode, their fire hydrant is seen to be whisked away by a tornado, and there isn't even a hole in the ground. So <laughs> it's refreshing to read a story where the writer-artist uh, knows what things are actually like. About that time travel, though, is this a rule in the Marvel Universe or, or a cheat? Well, thankfully, Avengers Endgame taught me that yes, this is the rule. Avengers, what? Oh sh shit! Um, I didn't say anything. It's it's a it's 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 a it's a story you haven't um, that you haven't read yet. Okay. Anyway, yes, uh, that's apparently the rule in the Marvel Universe, and I guess it makes sense with all the what if stories and such. I don't know how it affects Kang stories and that kind of thing. In fact, I'm pretty sure it contradicted in dozens of stories uh, like um, like the West Coast Avengers and the whole Phantom Rider thing that's the first thing that pops in my mind I mean that's not how time travel works in that story but at least some of the time this is true this is what how it works so Ben just created an alternate timeline where his career was cut short and like all what ifs everybody died because they changed that one thing well, they probably recruited Spider-Man after all, or... And everybody died. Okay, yes, everybody died. I want to mention a couple of fun details. Yeah, go ahead. Um, page three, we see Ben set the time machine, and his hand cleverly hides the last two numbers of the date. Um, on page uh, 17, the letterer has sort of erased part of the letters to make the joke more subtle, but the building up for demolition has a sign that says, Coming soon on this site... Another soulless glass and steel monstrosity with absolutely no architectural merit, courtesy of Randy Meacham. And I don't know, I don't know if those are invented names or if Byrne is insulting a real firm or what. Yeah, in 2020, we call that throwing shade. Oh, okay, a fun expression. Anything else? No, no, I think that's it. Uh, then I'll just mention one last detail, and that's the, the empty floor of the Baxter building Ben time travels to. Uh, we're told that this is the exact spot he was in in 1979 because he didn't touch the spatial coordinates. So seeing as the window panes have Renting Now written on them, uh, my first question was, is Reed's lab and the time machine kept on the first floor of the building? But then there's an elevator and it comes up. So now my question is, who is that rental ad for? And how high up is it? <laughs> Shit, yeah. Every time you see a diagram of the Baxter building, all the FF stuff is like way up on the, the top floors. And everything below that is just office space and, uh, you know, like a normal lobby and all that. So it seems a bit early uh, to advertise to the superhero set. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you can't argue with results. Now, who fared better? That's our mini-debate that we do uh, every time. And the first question is, how well does this fit each of the stories and atmospheres of the characters? Is this more of a 1961 thing story, or is it more of a 1979 thing story? Siskoid? Well, I'm going to defend my guy and say it's a 1961 alternate reality thing story. He's the hero of his tale. 
He sees a monster threaten his neighbors, he goes into action, and his story actually ends. Resolved. Okay, sure. Uh, But I'm going to defend 1979 thing, um, because after all, we start with him. It's... It's his emotional arc. He gets a chance to fix his life, and he learns that it didn't need fixing, and yet he fixes someone else's life. So in, in your version of events, he was perceived as a villain, uh, but in mine, there are no villains. But still, the contemporary thing is, is definitely the protagonist. Okay, okay. Cool moves. Who had the best moves? Is it the 1961 thing? Well, definitely, um, I think ripping out the fire hydrant pipe and using it to hose down the future thing is his big cool move, although, you know, he's got pretty solid action throughout. And yet, my guy does him one better by whip-cracking the the pipe and sending him flying, Uh, and I think that's my cool move. It's like basically using his move against him. What about dumb or weird moves? What do you think about your version of the thing? Well, I can understand the thing as anger management issues, especially early on like this, but... He's really bringing the damage to his own neighborhood in this one. He lives right there, uh, and yet he smashes a neighbor's car in the first seconds of the fight. He rips up the street right in front of his building. And he's going to be moving out uh, within days, which is really, you know, it's like a really shitty thing to to do. Or maybe he won't. Uh, I don't know. Is he still in the FF? Yeah, I don't know. I'd say yes. I think he'll always have a place on the team, at least as supporting personnel or like a pilot or whatever. For me, I gotta say, it's it's something we didn't mention earlier, but that formula, where was he keeping it? Um, <laughs> yeah, where, where was it? In his pants? Um, and, I, and then you go into a big fight, a big rumble, um, and that thing doesn't get smashed. So it's a, a pretty surprising development. Um, not that it's his fault, the fight, the fight's not his fault, but it's still, we don't see it jostling around in there. So, um, maybe just like his lack of pockets, uh, for his uniform and then going back in time with something that that is potentially fragile, you know, there's something, and then we never see it. So is it inside his closed fist or, you know, somewhere down his pants inside the, Inside his belt. I mean, from from the get go, the whole plan is kind of bizarre because he never thinks about uh, the paradox he might cause by changing his own past. How many uh, how many lives he saved in the intervening years? So uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit impulsive. This whole thing. Finally, uh, we have the friendly farewell. That team up tradition. Uh, how does this one rate? Well, my guy is sleeping through it, uh, but I guess they fought in the Marvel tradition. Uh, and then at the end, they helped each other out, um, like in two different ways, helped each other get on with their lives. So I kind of like that that sort of mirror. Sure, I like that too. Yeah, um, new timeline Ben Grimm is kind of the winner in all this, but original timeline thing pulls a sort of pirate victory out of his shorts, probably from the same bottomless pocket he had his formula in. Um, but with the thing, it's very often a sort of unfriendly farewell. So here... One character leaves the other one unconscious. Um, So we'll take a break for a couple of promos, and then we'll be back with our bonus team-ups. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics. Half man, half monster, half mud, half stone, and here's the thing, they call him the Earth Thing. The sole survivor of a starship downed by cosmic radiation, Grim Ben, was saved by an Earth elemental that restored him to life but rebuilt him the only way it knew how, which is not very well indeed. 
The year is 1970, and our hero is a complicated man, and no one understands him but his woman, Alicia Masters. Follow their adventures in every funky issue of Strange Tales, starring The Earth Thing. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994. Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. Our final feature, the bonus team-up in which each of us proposes a perfect 1961 thing team-up. Siskoid. Well, I looked up what was happening in 1961 and I thought about, um, you know, what about Yuri Gagarin? The first man in space. So he's also an astronaut, and maybe he got bombarded by cosmic rays, and that turned him into a monster of some kind as well. I don't know what to call him. Thing in Russian is Predmet, uh, which is an odd name, but we'll go for it. Uh, And of course, with the Cold War on, they fight, but in the end, uh, team up against a bigger threat and usher in an era of peace. And then the Watcher shows up and reveals it was an issue of What If, and everybody dies. (laughs) Okay, good. Good one. I'm I'm not sure I can even top that, but I'll try. I'm going to go a bit Elseworldsy, less less What Ify, and have astronaut Ben Grimm uh, downed by an alien spacecraft. They both are hit by cosmic rays and crash in the Antarctic. So maybe you see where I'm going with this. Uh, as Ben Grimm is transformed into a monster, his existential dread is tempered by having to save the Earth from the thing from another world. And of course, I want it to be, you know, John Carpenter's strength. If there's a scientific outpost in the story, and of course there is, they can mistrust the obvious monster and not believe him about the shapeshifter in their midst. And why not make the thing from another world a mutated scroll to tie into those early issues of FF? Oh, you did it. <laughs> thanks. And thanks for teaming up with me across the veil of time. Siskoid, remind people where they can find you. Well, I'll be in 2016 making things I guess everyone's already heard. Uh, so thanks for calling on me. And if this is Tuesday, we're still on Tuesdays. Yes, uh, they call it Canada Day. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, if it's Tuesday, have a good night going to the movies. Uh, Well, about that. What? Oh, uh, nothing. Here's a promo, and I'll be back with feedback from our previous episode. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman vs. the Man Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. Plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. 
wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And now your comments on our previous episode, which was Superman and the Quick Bunny special April Fool's Treat sort of thing with Michael Bailey. Chris Franklin starts us off. He says, I have that comic and got it when it was released, but I'm trying to remember how I got it. Did my mom bring it home from the grocery store where they were giving it away? Did I send in proofs of purchase for it? I'm not sure. I drank a lot of quick growing up, both chocolate and strawberry. We would sometimes have the Hershey syrup in the can too, and then later the bottle, which is what we buy here now. I never cared for the pre-made chocolate milk at school or in gallon jugs. I always thought it was too sweet and it seemed sweeter than quick or Hershey's to me. I don't know if Mike's dad really shopped there, but in my mind all their grocery shopping was done at the appropriately named Super Fresh. That's in my Michael Bailey headcanon. Uh, Bailey often talks about the Super Fresh, and he confirms that later in the comments. Chris goes on to say, um, This comic is surprisingly good and competently done despite its shilling a product. As you guys pointed out, it's got quite a prestigious cast of creators. Oddly enough, one of the first things I remember seeing uh, new Infantino art on was a set of Batman and Wonder Woman overlay packs designed for Etch-A-Sketch in the early 80s. Most of them involved using the Etch-A-Sketch to help the heroes go through mazes, much like the puzzles here. That clubhouse is pure Infantino heavy geometry, like his central cityscapes. Ryan Daly says, I drank Nestle Quicks all the time when I was growing up. It was particularly part of my daily breakfast. The only time I ever had chocolate milk made with chocolate syrup was when we would go out to eat at a diner. It always tasted wildly different to me, and for some reason I associated it more with a special treat, whereas quick chocolate milk was just normal. Sean Emmons has a bonus team up for us. Bugs Bunny, Trix Rabbit, Quick Bunny, Roger Rabbit, and Jackson. He calls it Hair Force. And then says, sorry, I'll let myself out. Yeah, go back to the Gimme Those Star Wars where you belong with that Jackson stuff. Brian Linton says, now that I think of it, I don't know that I've ever had a glass of Nestle's Quick. When it came to chocolate drinks, my parents favored Carnation Instant Breakfast Mix, which was supposed to be healthier chocolate drink option. I have no idea if this was actually the case. As for the issue, I appreciate the fact that the creators attempted to integrate the puzzles into the story itself. As a fan of the old choose-your-own-adventure books, I like stories that try to, at least, include interactive elements. Then we have Lizanne Oswald says, Impressive podcast. As a kid, I would have avoided this. Still, a Mike Carlin story with Carmine Infantino art is a cool combo, definitely... I would have thought the bunny would team up with Batman instead. After all, they both like endangering small children when fighting crime and have advanced tech. Santarin gives a sobering comment, says, The bitter irony of this is that Quick is sold as a treat, but for many of the people, especially kids who work the cocoa fields, uh, getting the crop to produce it is literally slave-like conditions. And he gives some, uh, some links. Nestle actually commits a lot of crimes, including the theft of water from uh, poor communities, price fixing, and a lot more. Uh, by rights, the Quick Bunny would have been a villain uh, in this piece, so Nestle, not a sponsor. Tim Price says, I couldn't say why, but my family had strawberry quick more often than chocolate. Nobody asked me because chocolate would have been the clear winner. It might have been some vain attempt by my parents to get the fruit flavor instead of the candy flavor. It didn't stop me from getting chocolate milk at school. Concept. 
All of the kid product mascots are pulled together to fight for Saturday morning television to keep themselves in the public consciousness against the slowly encroaching wave of some future technology called the Internet. Breakfast Hour, a crisis in cereal. And let's end with Rob Kelly. He says, I learned a lot about dairy expiration in this episode. Uh, that story about Siskoid watching Superman 4 almost makes the movie worth it. Almost. Uh, Superman really got saddled with all the weird promotional tie-ins that DC used to do. Right about this point, they fell out of favor. Batman replaced Soups as the company's preeminent brand, so we were spared the Dark Knight detective being teamed up with the Noid, uh, the Great Adventure Guy, or Chester Cheetah. And you're right, Rob, I think uh, Batman isn't as good as a shill. You know, it's like Superman is just bright enough, just kid-friendly enough that companies would want him to appear alongside their product. Whereas Batman, I am the knight, especially as as they were going a lot darker with him. Maybe maybe it wasn't so obvious uh, as far as team-ups go. I've just reached the bottom of the mailbag. A reminder that the uh, Fire and Water Podcast Network is on Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. If you like this content, want more like it, please think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation, and that can score you rewards. For example... Alan W. Wright is a particular sponsor of this show. And so, each episode, I will randomly select a guest star for him. So here it goes. Randomizer on. And this month, Alan is teamed up with the Scarlet Witch, which is interesting because last time it was Zatanna. So he's got really got something for these witchy characters. In the story, he shows up at a barbecue. There's a bit of jealousy with the vision, really testing his synthesoid emotions there. And in the end, everything's fine, which seems a bit improbable. Bravo, Scarlet Witch. And thank you, Alan. We do enjoy reading your comments. The best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or tag us on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcast. Uh, the show is now also on Spotify. And it is going on hiatus for the summer, I gotta say, so I can concentrate on other things. But we'll be back with another season. So see you next time for another amazing superhero team-up. Because after all, justice is a team effort. 